welcome to B.O. Boys, a special bonus episode. Fuck it, we're doing it live. I'm Clayton. Yeah, I'm Pat. And we have a very, very special guest. And Yeah, this this is a guy, well, I'm jumping in because I've known this guy for a long time, Clayton. You know, this is, I, I'm tooting my own horn because I, for, God, 10, 15 years, I've known someone who has now gone on to be a major director and someone who in 2020 could lay claim to having directed the number one box office comedy in America. I'm talking about the director of Killer, Raccoons 2, Dark Christmas in the Dark, Travis Irvine. Travis, thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the show. What's up, boys? Good to be with you. Yeah, this is this is great. I mean, me and Travis were reminiscing a little bit before uh, about old times. We knew each other in the comedy scene in New York back in the 2010s and the, you know, uh, whatever era that would have been. Worked on some web series together, some different fun stuff. But now, Travis, you are a box office force with a franchise, the Killer Raccoons franchise. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And uh, of course, I would be remiss if I did not mention that it was thanks to this podcast that we even knew that we had made the box office charts. Uh, I believe you let one of our actors, another mutual comedy friend, Nick Turner, know that uh, he was in one of the top comedies uh, of that weekend, I believe. I think it was the last weekend of July. Mm -hmm. Um, we We had no idea. Um, it was only thanks to this podcast that we even got the news. So um, I want to thank you for that. You're welcome. It's 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 really something because it would be as if in uh, uh, you know 1994, if there was someone who informed Jim Carrey that that Jim Carrey was now the biggest comedy box office star in America. You know, so I got to be that person to tell Nick. Nick Turner, you are the biggest comedy box office star in America. Yes. And, and of course, you know, um, as we once we gotten that news, we leaned into it with everything we had um, for the next few weeks. But obviously there's it's fun because there's a lot of asterisks uh, by this uh, distinguished honor. Obviously, I mean, 2020 <laughs> was the year of the global pandemic. Movie theaters were shut down. Killer Raccoons 2 is actually supposed to make a theatrical premiere in los angeles for 420 and then it got pushed to may and then it got pushed to june and then finally i think our distributors just like eh, sneak it out the back door we didn't even know if it was going to come out for christmas in july but they snuck it out that last weekend and thanks to the fact that there were no movies and also thanks to the fact that box office receipts could include all prior sales before the release and also all streaming sales that is the only reason Killer Raccoons 2 made the list because I think we were one of five new movies in America at that time. And at that time, of course, we were the only comedy. So, uh, you know, it's a lot of asterisks by the honor. But uh, we were technically, historically, box office certified the number one new comedy in America until they released that Liam Neeson movie. I think it was uh, The Italian or something like that. And they said it was a comedy. It sounded like just another smash and grab Liam Neeson movie. But that was our big competition as the weeks of summer 
waned on. Well, that was. I mean, I'm looking. That was the I'll big. That was it, the big boys trying to to step on the the little guys. I mean, it's a story as old as time. But I mean, we all we saw through that illusion. We knew, we knew what was the big comedy at the time. Oh, absolutely. And you know, by the end of the summer, everyone was talking about Bill and Ted three, and of course, that was an honor uh, to even be in the same conversation as top comedies of the summer with. The likes of Bill and Ted, but uh, of course we were a sequel, and yes, absolutely, we were indie, and so we kept running uh, with that that uh, great uh, all, all these great asterisks and parentheses uh, by our movie's name. But at the end of the day, we were the number one new comedy of the summer, and we even got it published in newspapers, uh, including Cleveland.com, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and any other newspaper in Cleveland. I think that was the only city that really cared about it uh by the end of last summer we were screening in cleveland and that's why uh they gave us so much attention uh but now it's fun because now we actually have those newspaper quotes that you can put on the dvd and things like that where it's like the number one new comedy in america and now it's you know newspaper certified i i saw a when i was doing my research for this interview i saw you on a local Cleveland television uh, program, on a local Cleveland newscast, talking about the opening of Killer Raccoons to Dark Christmas in the Dark. So congratulations, you made Cleveland television. Buddy, you know, it's like Tina Fey to say, if you can't kill in Cleveland, you can't kill anywhere. Those people Uh, need to laugh. So let's backtrack a little before we get back to the pure box office story. Tell us... Uh, Killer Raccoons 2 has the number 2 in it, so therefore that means there was a Killer Raccoons 1. So tell us a little bit about how the first one came about and then how that led to you years later getting back on the horse, giving people what they wanted, you know, which is dangerous. You know, Stiller came back and gave people Zoolander 2 and it turns out we didn't actually want it. but. <laughs> right. You got on the horse and you gave people the sequel. So how did it start? And then what made you feel like this was the time to give them uh, KR2? That is a a fantastic question. And of course, it's a a very long answer. Um, But it did start in the spring of 2004. I was a student at Ohio University. Uh, I had joined a comedy troupe. And uh, me and the guys were uh, on spring break, spring break, college spring break. Classic time to hang out with your boys. Um, But we were down in Florida with the uh, Ohio University Surf Club, and we were just stoner comedians, so we were not surfing. But we were hanging out, and we went to see a movie called Dawn of the Dead, which was a a remake, a Zack Snyder remake of the old zombie classic. And up until that point, believe it or not, I had never seen a zombie movie. I think the darkest um, horror comedy I'd ever seen at that point was still Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which still, by the way, does hold up. That's great. But I was was very – I mean I I would say that I was uh, very out of the loop on cool, uh, dark horror comedies. So this is the first one I had ever seen. Zack Snyder directed. I believe James Gunn had a hand in writing it. And, of course, there's a Richard Cheese song in it that blew up uh, Richard Cheese, the famous lounge singer who Mm -hmm. covers so many great songs. So, so many things that I just loved about it. And so I was geeking out, like, the rest of the night, and we're out camping, and, uh, you know, we're we're, uh, doing things that college comedy stoner dudes do. And at some point in the night, raccoons uh, start to attack the campground, but not really attack. You know, they're just kind of, like, 
slinking around getting into people's food and stuff. But they mm-hmm. were talking to one another with their, their creepy little raccoon noises. You know, they sound like dolphins. And it was so weird. And I'm all high. And I look at my buddy. And I'm like, you know, thinking about the movie that day. I'm like, man, has anyone ever made a movie about killer raccoons? And this is like 2004. We didn't have smartphones. You know, the cell phones were, were just simple, you know, like pagers at that point. And, and, and Travis, so what you're saying is you were high when you said the raccoons are talking to each other. Just I just want to be clear about that. It's it felt like they were talking to each other. Okay. But certainly, as I've done more research, you don't have to be high to realize how smart raccoons mm-hmm. are with their, you know, as you do more research, this is how they get into things. You know, this is mm-hmm. how they break into garbage cans and stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think I would have, you know, had the idea of, hey, has anyone ever made a movie about killer raccoons without uh, some sweet, sweet uh, influence, if you will. Yeah, thank God for that kush. Yeah, well, it was probably not kush. It was 2004 <laughs> college. But uh, either way, you know, when I got back to school from the trip, I hopped on Internet Explorer or Bing or whatever it was and searched for Killer Raccoon movies. And sure enough, there were none. So I felt I had to uh, go ahead and, and take this on. So that was my college movie. We, it, that was the idea. That was the, the beginning. Of course, then you got to write the script. I did a lot of research of man versus nature movies, but very bad ones, right? Like Grizzly, Frogs, Piranhas, Orca. Um, there's a ri- uh, just so many out there. Um, killer. Did you, so something I looked at in my research, did you have actual frozen raccoons that you used in the first Killer Raccoons movie? Yes, first and second. And I can tell you how that went down. Um, you know, as we got the script done and I got my comedy buddies committed to all be in the movie. And, you know, I basically told my friends, I was like, we're going to make a movie this summer, you know, uh, and try to get college credit for it or whatever. Um, you know, we had like $5,000 maybe. I think that was the budget for the first one. And as I was researching specifically how to do the raccoons, I already knew I'd be fine if they looked dumb. You know, if you watch Frogs or Grizzly or any of these older uh schlocky man versus nature movies i mean it, it's it's very limited in its uh budget and what they show of the of the animals mm-hmm. um i mean so if with, you watch an uve bowl movie i would say killer raccoons are are at least on the level of an uve bowl oh absolutely i mean ooh, uve bowl i mean my gosh you are correct and uh yeah, that's uh, basically, I I was fine with just taxidermy puppet-looking raccoons, you know, jumping on people. We make it really fun and schlocky. Um, and then I was interviewing literally a raccoon expert at Ohio State University, which is in my, uh, oh, excuse me, the Ohio State University. They'll sue you if you don't get it right. Um, I did not go there. I went to the Ohio University. Um, but nonetheless, this raccoon expert was up at Ohio state and I was interviewing him and I was like, yeah, so I was just going to do like taxidermy raccoons. I don't know how to get those. And he was like, Oh, taxidermy raccoons. That'd be like $600 each. And I was like, Oh, we cannot afford that. And he was like, well, check this out. Um, pest control companies are throwing away raccoon corpses all the time. Um, because, because in Ohio they're considered pests, right? So you you have to kill them. You can't just capture them and release you know, that'll just create a crisis. So you always have to murder them. And what these pest control companies do is they gas them, then they freeze them, and then they throw them away. That's guaranteed to kill all diseases and is the most sanitary way to do it. So this biologist straight up told me, he was like, 
you know, biology people will play pranks on each other with dead frozen raccoons all the time because you can get them. You can thaw them out enough that they're pliable. You can put them in fun positions and then you can put them back in the freezer and they freeze that way. And I was like, well, that's crazy. So I get home like that night. um, Do you think that's how they do it in the Guardians movies? A hundred percent. James Gunn has stolen everything I've done. You've heard it here first. Um, and, but that's because, uh, our, eventually our movie became a trauma movie and James Gunn was a trauma alum. So I actually mm-hmm. met James Gunn, like on the day I was like signing away my movie to Lloyd Kaufman and trauma. Um, but that's further down the line. Um, I got to mm-hmm. get out this story about how do you find dead frozen raccoons? And th- literally that night that I found out about the fact that we could even use dead frozen raccoons from that biology professor, I got home, uh, to my parents' place where I was, uh, you know, probably staying that summer um, between college. And uh, I was talking to my uh, buddy, uh, my dad's buddy, he's a biology professor. And I'm just like, yeah, I got, you know, if we're going to make this movie, I got to get a bunch of dead frozen raccoons for, you know, free. And then this guy's, I remember he's drinking a Bloody Mary and he like puts it down and he licks it out of his mustache. He's like, oh, you need dead frozen raccoons. How many dead frozen raccoons do you need? I can get you as many as you want. So uh, I went to uh, – he sent me to a pest control company in Delaware, Ohio, a man named Dirk. And uh, I remember I called Dirk and you know, asked him for uh, dead frozen raccoons. At that point, we didn't know, you know how do you, what do you even do. So we opted to get six uh, tiny raccoons that we could like you know, move around because it was going to mm-hmm. be like a messed up Muppet show, right? Like we were going to literally like, be sitting like the Muppeteers – Right. Instead of having a puppet, you have a dead frozen raccoon <laughs> bobbling over your head. Um, and we also, one mistake we made in the first movie was we got a giant 40-pound dead frozen raccoon that was going to be our mama. It was so big and heavy that we had to just get an extreme close-up on it because it took three of us to like lift it. Uh-huh. Um, so it was like very ill-advised. But she's, you know, she's wearing a crown and a pearl necklace and everything. So how does the unfreezing, moving them around and freezing them again process go? Like, do these, do you have to warm up these raccoons before you could use them? And, and is that, to me, that seems like there's some issues that could happen when you're warming up a, uh, a corpse. Right. Well, you got to let it thaw. That's what it is. No, you can't nuke it. Right. No, God. Oh, Lordy, no. And I will say, I kept one of these. We had a test dead frozen raccoon, obviously, first before we did anything else. And I kept that in my freezer in my apartment in college. And don't do that either. You may, you got to have a, diff, a separate freezer for the dead mm-hmm. frozen raccoons. So that mm-hmm. is always part of the expense. Um, but, you know, the first the first movie was we made in the summer of 2005. It was like the hottest summer on record. So just leaving the raccoons out and keeping an eye on them, you know, make sure no flies start to, once the flies show up, you've gone too long with your thawing process. Right. Um, right. But for the second movie, because it was a Christmas movie and it was winter, yeah, we actually, my dad and I had to uh, create an operation where we had a heater and a tarp and the raccoons kind of out under this tarp so they could start to thaw a little quicker. Because, you know, we had a production schedule and we didn't have those raccoons in attack mode. Uh, right. By a certain point, then we would have missed it. So, 
Um, so yeah, so Dirk hooked us up with raccoons, and I will say for the Dead Frozen Raccoons for the second movie, literally, I'm, I just called up Dirk again. I was like, "Hey, is Dirk there?" He's like, "Yeah, this is Dirk." I'm like, "Oh, hey, uh, it's Travis. You gave me uh, Dead Frozen Raccoons for a movie twelve years ago." And he's like, "Oh yeah, how'd that go?" And I was like, "Pretty good. We're doing another one." So did did Dead Frozen Raccoon technology advance at all in those twelve years? You know, because you talk about you you think about how like. James Cameron didn't want to make an Avatar sequel until he had the technology where he needed it to. You know, Lucas didn't make the Star Wars prequels until he felt the technology had progressed. Did you wait to make Killer Raccoons 2 because the technology finally caught up to your vision? That is a hilarious question, and I want to thank you for asking it. But no, we just waited until... We had enough money to make another movie. Okay. That's, <laughs> and, that's and fair in, too. And interest. But I will say our operation was way better on the second movie for sure. We had uh, Ohio University interns wearing gloves and doing the raccoon puppetry and doing it in winter. That was clutch because for the second, you know, the first movie, it was all attacking, right? The second mm-hmm. movie, as you know, the raccoons are government trained at this point. Yes. So they're either holding machine guns or they're typing on computers. So the only two positions we really needed was gun raccoon or typing raccoon. Um, Uh, And and then we had like two uh, main hench raccoons, Pippi and Skippy. Um, And they're all dressed in elf costumes, whereas in the first movie they're all naked. So there was actually a lot of things we improved for the second movie in terms of the operation. The first movie, of course... Summer 2005, it's so hot. On one of the takes, and I'll never forget, my producer Mark was holding the raccoon and some brown juice came out of it right in his eye and we were rolling camera. And I'm like, oh my God, Mark, Mark, are you okay? And he's like, get the fucking shot. And we got the shot and, you know, got that shit out of Mark's eye. But it was so hot, they were starting to uh, get juicy. So thank God for the second movie. It was nice and frozen. So I uh, watched this movie on... uh rented on Amazon, loved it. I love Killer Raccoons too. I legit I, it's it's really great and it is a real operation. You know, like like I was so impressed watching it and then watching the credits because there were this is a this is a, a full movie crew making this thing. And I got to ask you a question about uh uh your thought process on one of the big decisions in that this movie, so much of it takes place on a moving train. And you have, this is not like, you know, high school sketch film type of thing where it's like stock footage. Like you shot this low budget indie movie on a moving train or at least had moving train scenes. Yes. You, uh, why? 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 Wh- wh- you, I, you really set the bar high on this one. So talk about why you made the decision to have moving trains mixed in with your killer raccoons. Sure. Um, well, we, we finished the first movie. Um, and of course, we were so stupid and high um, in 21. We called it Coons, Night of the Bandits of the Night. We we're from Appalachia. We were like, it means raccoons. We sold it to a movie a company called Troma Entertainment. They're mm-hmm. the cult film distributor. It's still available exclusively through Troma. Um, and of course it was available on Amazon and YouTube, whatever Troma's various channels were. 
um, for years. But we always knew that if we were going to make a sequel to Coon's Night of the Bands of the Night, number one, we'd probably have to change the name. Um, so we changed it to Killer Raccoons 2. But the mm-hmm. second most important element was that we knew it had to be a almost shot-for-shot, scene-for-scene parody of Under Siege 2 Dark Territory, an idea that we had literally the summer after we graduated. You know, we were, we were the first feature-length film to get a distribution deal um, as undergraduate students at Ohio University in, like, school history, you know? So um, we were feeling pretty cool about ourselves. Um, but, you know, that idea, you know, we watched under siege to dark territory and just imagined all this stuff happening. But that idea was, we had that idea summer 2006 after we graduated and it got lost for about seven years uh, until the cast of the first movie, these guys who are now with a, a great found footage collective called everything is terrible.com. Um, check out their stuff. They're great. But the actors from my first movie are now part of everything is terrible. And we were shooting something in Chicago in 2013, and they were all like, hey, when are we doing Coons 2? And I was like, really? You guys still want to do that? And they were like, yeah, it's, it's when are we doing it? And like, I'm like, okay. So we literally rented Under Siege 2 Dark Territory that night, watched it together, and the seed was planted again. Because that movie, just talk about bad action 90s sequels. Um, Under Siege 2 is the king. Now, obviously, we grabbed a few other elements for the sequel, Killer Raccoons 2, we mixed in some Die Hard 2, Die Harder. We mixed in some Speed 2, Cruise Control. Just any elements of bad action sequels. But um, Under Siege 2 is the real reason we needed the train. We knew we wanted it to be on a train. And then when it came to production, that train that we used, Pat, was actually in a small town right by where I went to college called Nelsonville, Ohio. Um, it's a nonprofit group called Hocking Valley Scenic Railway. And they gave us the train. They let us shoot for about two weeks in their engine house with all the real trains. Every single, um, even the ones that looked fake, like in the kitchen or in the bedroom on the train, that's all real uh, antique train cars. And they let us have it all for $25 a day. Whoa. That is amazing. And did you get to drive the train or did you have to have, did, oh, did you God, need no. a licensed train driver or did they just let you jump in the, in the, in the seat? So the cool thing about that nonprofit is it's all old railroad guys. Um, you know, guys who have lifetime benefits from, I don't know what name, a big railroad road company, CNO or Amtrak, things like that. Yeah. Um, and trains, you know, I learned a lot, you know, I always, I used to like trains, you know, when I was a kid, I always had Lego trains, stuff like that. But, when you actually see how the trains move, it really is just like almost like bumper cars and then they connect and then they pull, you know. Um, but no, uh, they drove all the trains. Um, they specifically had a full, one full-time employee who we, we would tip. Um, we would tip him $25 a day to move the trains and stuff like that. So they really gave it to us for free. They were just like, you know, compensate Frank <laughs> in right. some way for moving all the trains. So um, they were awesome. You know, I had to go into their board meetings for a few months and kind of like talk it over. Um, and to be honest, you know, at first I was like, maybe it should be a summer movie. Um, and then once I saw Die Hard 2, I was like, oh, it should be a Christmas movie. And I knew that they had a Christmas train that they did every year. So a lot of the decorations, you know, the uh, the little train station that's all decorated and all of that stuff is real. And we just kind of, you know, popped in while they were set up for Christmas. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a big reason why this was a box office success because filming it on a train, 
and having this high production value where it wasn't just going back to the camp, which listen, that would have been, people would have loved it because they loved seeing the killer raccoons at the camp, but leveling up and adding the production value, adding the train, that's what let the theater goers know this is big time. This is a big, this, I mean, what it ended up being, it was a big summer action comedy. It came out in July. And I think if you hadn't added the train element, you you might not have been the number one box office comedy in America. You're right. It's an instant, uh, it's an instant production value boost. Yeah. You know, the first movie we made for $5,000 but you know, 2005, 2006, everyone was like, "It looks like you spent sixty to a hundred thousand dollars on this," because you know mm. everyone was making movies on mini DV and kind of getting away with that back then. Um, now it looks like shit, obviously. Uh, and then with technology, with everything, you know, HD cameras looking so good, um, and the raccoons being free, and the train being free, um, Killer Raccoons Two basically cost uh, around fifty thousand dollars. So we only wow. add, we added one zero. Um, but same deal, like the production value, people will tell us it looks like we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this thing, which is a big honor. Because at this point, just imagine what we could do with hundreds of thousands of dollars. And uh, that's what that's why I'm calling you from L.A. today. You know, it's it's kind of like uh, it's a fun new little calling card, basically. Yeah. And, and that's what you got to have when you're a, a filmmaker, an indie filmmaker, especially. Yeah, it. I mean, it, it looks great. And let's talk a little bit about uh, the cast. So you mentioned, so you you did, you were able to bring back a lot of the cast from the first movie. And, um, you know, you have a lot of these uh, big stars of the comedy scene, uh, Nick Vatterot and Nick Turner from the podcast Get Rich Nick. They were both in it. Um, and... You could you tell us about some of the other? You had a sort of celebrity cast member in those in those Pentagon scenes. If you want to talk about how you landed this person, sure. Um, basically, well, yeah. With the first movie, I did ask uh, anyone who was in the first movie whose character was coming back for the second movie. I did ask all of those actors. Uh, one mm. actor, of course, has passed away. Our friend Dan Velez um, was in the first movie. He, he became a great casting director here in L.A. Everyone knew him. Everyone loved him. He died uh, on a, an unfortunate accident. But I always remember he was extremely down to be in uh, in the second movie, in the sequel. Even as a casting director, he was like, yeah, sure, I'll try to act again. So he was the only one I knew I couldn't get. And then um, three of the guys who were with Everything is Terrible, uh, .com, who were in the first movie, uh, could not make it back from L.A. And, and the flights were crazy at Christmas anyway, so... We went with a lot of Ohio cast, mm -hmm. um, but the Ohio cast had New York roots or they had experience in L.A. You know, the, a lot of the main cast was kind of Ohio actors who have also done stuff in New York or L.A. And then, yes, the nice thing with Under Siege 2 is that it's like basically two movies. There's a movie on the train and there's another movie in the military bunker where they're trying to figure out what's happening on the train. Mm -hmm. And we knew with the military bunker we could do that in like a place like L.A. or New York and get as many celebrities as we could. So, yes, I called all my famous comedy friends, Ron Lynch, James Adomian, Nick Turner, Nick Vatterot, Jackie Zabrowski, Alex Hooper, 
Um, I've got so many fun people. And then one of our producers had uh, Ron Jeremy, the porn stars uh, number. That's and, who I was. That's who I was hinting at. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to get through everybody before we got to Ron Jeremy because Ron Jeremy ends up being this crazy story of for me. You know, Ron Jeremy's in Trey Parker's second movie, uh, Orgasmo, which mm-hmm. is about a Mormon porn star, um, and of course, Trey Parker's first movie, Cannibal the Musical, was a trauma movie. So here I am, a trauma alum, and I was kind of like. Oh, okay. Let's call Ron Jeremy, see if he's interested. And I told him it was a trauma movie. He's like, oh, yeah, trauma. I love trauma. He's been in a lot of trauma movies. And I was like, it's about raccoons. He's like, oh, raccoons. I love raccoons. So we booked Ron Jeremy, and we were feeling pretty cool about it. And then the day we shot with Ron Jeremy, we did like this insane 12-hour day, five of those hours with Ron Jeremy, paid him in cash, got him out the door. And then one of my actors comes up is like, Holds up his phone and is like, top story in TMZ, bro. And there's a story about Ron Jeremy getting accused of sexual assault. And we were like, you know, I, I meet, my first reaction was I looked at my producer and I was like, well, can we get Christopher Plummer? Uh, which is very funny to say to an indie producer because no, we cannot. Uh, he no, was still no. alive at the time, but we could not. Um, so we kind of just leave Ron Jeremy in the movie because we had no money to take him out or any, you know, or reshoot or anything. Um, and now this kind of ends up being this new bizarre cult piece of this cult comedy um, right. and that Ron Jeremy has now been charged and will never make movies again. And one of the last movies he'll ever make in his dumb career is this dumbass movie. Um, and it is nice because the movie is so dumb and it moves so fast that I, at some point I do feel, you know, we've done live shows obviously since all the Ron Jeremy scandal broke. Eventually you just forget that it's Ron Jeremy. You're just caught up in the movie. Right. I mean, I think, and I think it is with someone like Ron Jeremy, um, it's not like he was known for his virtue beforehand. So I think people's uh, view on him is pretty, is pretty similar. You're, you know, it's, it's not, it's not totally blowing your mind on what you once thought of Ron Jeremy. So I think the people who watch this movie, you know, they'll, they'll, Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we don't want to get in a position where we're, like, having to defend him or anything. No, we just, no, We're just not. indie filmmakers who had right. no idea, and then we didn't have any money to take him out. Um, right. And, you know, he wasn't, like, particularly good. I mean, Nick Turner will tell you, I had to basically feed Ron Jeremy all of his lines because, you know, when he was an actor, doing your lines meant something different. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, again, it's just kind of this weird, uh, uh, another weird cult element of this already weird cult film that it's going to be – one of the last movies that guy's ever in. And uh, hopefully now he will get a sentence that he can finish. <laughs> yes. Very good. Um, but it will not be the last movie that Nick Turner is ever in. We've had him on the show. And uh, I, th- Nick- I mean, I, listen, we just think this guy is going to be, is when you come out of a movie like this and it's a big hit and you're getting all this buzz. You're getting on these uh, Cleveland television shows. You're on the B.O. Boys, number one comedy in America. And you look at the cast. Is there something in the works with you and Nick Turner? Because it feels like that is a team that is coming out of this hot. And people are going to wonder, what is the next move? What is the next collaboration that these two are going to are going to are going to bring us next. Well, yes. I mean, I've known Nick since 2008 since I met him in DC. I definitely want to collaborate with uh, Nick again. 
Um, and, and of course, I'd be remiss if I did not mention, thanks to great old uh, web series like yours, The Gentleman's Club, that mm-hmm. uh, Nick and myself and so many of our comedian friends once acted in. I think that's where we really improved our acting chops. Yeah, um, it's like it's basically like the uh, the Breakfast Club of a new generation. It's it's where all the the stars came together for the first time. But yeah, that would be yourself and Nick were together in that web series in the 2010s. But now you graduated from the internet to the big screen to the box office. So I I, I just think keep that in mind. People like this team. Yes. And they want to see them want to see this team continue. Yes, and, and absolutely, um, not only do I want to make a third and final Killer Raccoon movie called Trash Pandas 3, Moonbase on the Moon, it will be a sci-fi parody, um, but I want to make more movies with my friends. You know, I love those those indie comedy filmmakers like Christopher Guest, who sticks with like a core team and brings back um, his core actors that he loves. So you will see Nick Turner again. Uh, not only do we love going on hikes, but, uh, you know, that guy's a talent. I want to put them in more movies and just make more movies in general. So, and just to throw this out there, I think I speak for Clayton when I say, when you're making Killer Raccoons three, you know, throw the throw the Bo Boys a little a little part. Oh yeah, you know, Absolutely. we could be in a control room, we could be in a camp, control we could rooms. be on the moon. Yes, you know? moon base on the moon. Trash pandas three. Moonbase on the Moon. That way we change the name of, you know, then we include every name for a raccoon uh, mm-hmm. that does exist. Uh, and the sci-fi parody is is certainly ripe. So, yes, don't you worry, B.O. boys. As long as you guys can pay for your own flights and your own meals and you're not SAG. <laughs> we are. No, we are not. We are not SAG. No, we we are. Uh, we're, we're B.O. unions only. So that, that doesn't affect your uh your production budget and pat can and pat can totally spot me i you know what i'll get you out there because i want to be in this movie (laughs) and if only one bo boy is in the movie then people are going to be like where's what happened to clayton where's the other one is pat being a dick and not paying for clayton's tickets up fine yes I'll, i'll get both of us out there and just get the bo boys in an astronaut suit, have the raccoons blow us up in space. It'll be great. You got it. No problem. Um, so I guess just last thing is looking at the box office performance over the summer, big summer hit. Did you get to, um, you know, you said that the box office was a mix of the, the streaming rentals and different screenings that happen over the course of weeks in the middle of the pandemic, did you at least get to be at any screenings of the movie when it, when it was in theaters over the summer? Did you get to experience like people watching it in theaters or did you kind of have to forego that? Um, I was not able, I actually was working a campaign job in Wyoming, um, Mm -hmm. like starting August 1st. So like right after we had gotten the news from the BO boys that we were one of the top ranked comedies in America, I had to go do a campaign job. So I was kind of doing promo and stuff, but I didn't get to see Killer Raccoons 2 um, in a theater till Christmas. Um, there's this great theater in Columbus, Ohio called Studio 35. It's actually where Kevin Smith will go and do his shows when he's in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and so we did have a screening there, socially distanced and everything. At the, you know, it was December, so it was height of the 
the numbers in the pandemic, but that was awesome. We had trivia. Everyone, we did five dumb questions that, you know, you, anyone could answer, but everyone stuck around to answer the trivia questions and we gave out uh, props and prizes and it felt like old times. So that's the cool thing is that we get to do that every year now for Christmas. We get to go do screenings like that and uh, keep building new fans every year. And I will say, as you know, Pat, we were uh, Academy Award eligible Yes. And that was because we screened at a drive-in here in L.A. back in January. So it was after the Christmas holiday, and obviously everyone was in their cars. But that was fun, too, because we would all honk at a joke we liked or or something like that. And it was because of that one drive-in screening that we became eligible. One of 366 movies eligible for the Academy Awards. Of course, we did not get nominated, but it was an honor just to be eligible. I mean, 366 2020 was a leap year, and that's a movie for every day. So on one of those days, you can watch Killer Raccoons too. That That is a great way to, to leave it. Um, so do you want to uh, plug where can people watch Killer Raccoons 2, Dark Christmas in the Dark right now? It is streaming everywhere that you can find uh, movies streaming. Uh, people have found it on their PlayStations. Uh, Amazon is obviously very convenient. iTunes. Uh, Frontier it is literally everywhere. If you search for Killer Raccoons 2, I guarantee it'll be the only movie that pops up. Nice. Well, thank you, Travis Irvine, director of what was over the summer the number one comedy movie in America for at least one week. Uh, and uh, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to getting killed by raccoons in the end of the trilogy. Thank you so much for all you do, B.O. Boys. If it wasn't for you, we would have never known that Killer Raccoons 2 was the number one new comedy in America. Well, you're welcome, Travis. Thank you, Thanks Travis. Thanks so much.